This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. Our scripture this morning came from 1 Peter, the 4th chapter, and the 12th through the 14th verses. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. For many of us, In the Christian faith, we have a tendency to believe that we have committed ourselves in one way or another to Jesus Christ, then we should be exempt from the sufferings that come with this life. While it is true that our scriptures give us many promises that help us look forward to hope, prosperity, and a land flowing with milk and honey, the truth is sometimes our expectations of God do not line up with the realities of our lives. I heard it said once that disappointments in life do not come because of what you find. Disappointment in life comes because of what you expected to find. In other words, our lives are filled with much discontent because we are living with fabled dreams and unrealistic expectations of ourselves, of others, and of God. And when those expectations are not met, we are left hopeless and despairing. Mm. Mm. But if we know that the sunshine and the rain fall indiscriminately on the believer and the unbeliever among us, then it is reasonable to expect that fiery ordeals Spare neither the believer nor the unbeliever. Suffering then is inevitable, as validated in the song made famous by Frankie Beverly and Mays. Joy and pain alike. So suffering in our lives then should never come as a surprise to the follower of Christ. For if Christ himself was not spared, then why do we think that we should be? The sufferings of Christians and every Christian is simply an exercise in doing our part and having our share in the once and for all sufferings of Jesus Christ. Mm. And it warrants us no special privilege in this world. Mm. So we must and will suffer. But despite our sufferings, God speaks through it, which means that our sufferings in this life, whatever they may be, has some kind of redemptive value and has meaning. And it's that meaning that I want to talk about in brief today in a message I've titled, The Spirit of Glory. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you now for the preaching hour. We pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart May it be acceptable in your sight. And may someone hear something today that allows them to draw just a little closer to you. We do not know, Lord, what will happen. But we do know, Lord, that you do. So guide us and guide our hearts. 
And give us ears to hear and a heart to receive what thus saith the Lord today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Edward Turner III, more popularly known as Ted Turner, was an American entrepreneur, television producer, media proprietor, and philanthropist. He founded the cable news network, which we know as CNN, which was the first 24-hour cable news channel. And in addition, he founded WTBS, which pioneered the superstation concept and which later became TBS. It is reported that he had a net worth of about $2.3 billion, and he has given over a billion dollars to multiple United Nations causes. Being very outspoken as he was, he made several gaffes and harsh statements that got him into a lot of trouble. And some of these harsh statements that he made was directed at the church and Christianity. Christianity is for losers, he said in 1990, and he even joked that the Pope should step on a landmine. He once asked some of his CNN employees who were wearing ashes on their forehead during Ash Wednesday, what are you, a bunch of Jesus freaks? And he even blamed his divorce from Jane Fonda on her decision to become a practicing Christian. Interestingly enough, Ted Turner grew up in a Christian home. And at 17, he had planned on becoming a missionary. He had even admitted that he was very religious when he was young, even stating, I was a born-again Christian. In fact, I was born again seven times including once by Billy Graham. I mean, I know it inside and out. But Ted Turner lost his faith when he watched his sister die from a rare form of lupus at the tender age of 20. For five years, Turner said, I prayed 30 minutes every day for God to save her, and he didn't. A kind and loving God wouldn't let my sister suffer so much. And as a result, he said to God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I wonder if Ted prayed for anyone else's sister. Be that as it may, Ted's story is not uncommon. And I would even go so far as to say that Ted's story reads a lot like some of our own. It is a difficult thing to have to try and reconcile in our minds the thought that a kind and a loving God would allow suffering of this and any kind in the world. To us, it seems to make no sense, especially when we are the ones that are suffering. So the question on almost every person's mind Every time something happens, we always ask the question, why does a good God allow good people to suffer? Well, it's a question we ask over and over and over again, whether we are admitted believers or not. Why would a good God allow good people to suffer? Mm. It's an important question. And one that has challenged the hearts and the minds of theologians and Christians all through the centuries and the ages. But to be quite honest, I think it's a poor question to ask because it demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of God and how he works. Amen. Hear me, church. 
Yes, it is true that God is good. Yes, it is true that people suffer. Yes, it is true that God allows it to happen. But it is not true that people are good. It is not true that some people do not deserve to suffer while others do. It is not true that in allowing bad things to happen, God does nothing about it. Not true. The question attempts to challenge God's nature and implies that God has in some way mistakenly allowed things to happen to people that shouldn't happen to them, while in other instances withholds things that should be allowed to happen to other people. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie. For the truth is God is benevolent. God is merciful. God is loving. God is caring. God is gracious. And yes, God is good. So to ask why does a good God allow good people to suffer is to fundamentally misread God. For the truth is people suffer because something has gone wrong with the world. <laughs> it really is that simple. Something has gone radically wrong with this world. So let's talk about suffering. To say we are suffering means that we may be experiencing illness and physical pain in our bodies, depression, financial pressure, oppression from various sectors of our society, caring for an aging parent, or a sense of worthlessness and abandonment caused by trauma brought on by ourselves or some kind of relationship breakdown. But whatever suffering you are experiencing, it serves to validate that something has gone dreadfully wrong yeah. with this world. And no matter how people may try to twist it or rationalize it or even to justify it, the fact is suffering exists in this world because the world is functioning in a manner that God did not intend. Mm. But there's something I like about the question. Why does a good God allow good people to suffer? And the thing is, that I like is that it makes God real. To ask God why acknowledges that he exists and that he has the answers we seek. For what point would there be in asking a question of someone that is not real? So if God is real, then it means that there is hope for the suffering. And the one who questions, who, who's questioned sufferings in this life, there is hope. So let's talk briefly about what went wrong in this world. See, I, 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 let me pause here for a second. I, you know, a lot of times, I think a lot of people struggle with God because we tend to, as preachers, preach messages that, you know, seek to entertain. And we have forgotten doctrine. So we're going to talk a little doctrine today. The Christian faith is the only religious movement that makes sense of the rawness we feel in the face of suffering because it is the only religious movement that acknowledges that there is something wrong with the world. Christianity unequivocally declares that things are not the way they should be. 
Every single day, we bear witness to a world where good and evil are at play on the world stage and the lives of every single human being is affected by it. So while God is good, evil is also real and was able to enter God's good creation through a catastrophic event we know as the fall. Simply put, the fall is a term used in Christianity to describe the transition of the first man and woman from the state of innocent obedience to God to a state of guilty disobedience to God. This state occurred immediately after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden and discovered, hear me church, and discovered through a knowledge of good and evil that they were naked and subsequently felt shame. The common term we use for this act of disobedience is original sin. So let me make this very clear in case this is sounding a little too academic. Original sin is an act that took place when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. And this act caused a transition from one state to another, which we call the fall. So original sin is the act and the fall is the transition. It is the classic case of cause and effect. Original sin is the cause, and the transition is the effect. Now, going back to our question, why does a good God allow good people to suffer? It should now be understood that God was neither responsible for the cause nor the effect. Making the question, why does God immature. For now we see that the real root of the question, since God did not cause it and he did not do it, then he is guilty for allowing it. And that is why Ted Turner and most people are upset to the point of even losing their faith. God didn't cause it. God wasn't the reason for the effect. But God, you allow it. And if we are honest, because guess what? God can handle it. God, you allow it. That's why Ted Turner was upset. He said, I prayed 30 minutes every day for God to save her. And he didn't. A kind and a loving God wouldn't let my sister suffer so much. And I don't want anything to do with you, God. This statement and statement like these, which I know many of you make, show how grossly naive and remarkably misinformed American Christians and many other people are about the fall. By not understanding and even discounting the fallenness of man, not evil, makes us ignorant of how this transition has led to the devastating effects where we have a loss of identity and our alienation from God and the basic disorientation that has produced, in a word, death, which by the way, has infected the whole creation, not just human beings and nations. The problem of fallenness has caused us to live in a perpetual state of strife and anxiety and brokenness that we are like fish swimming in an ocean. But unlike the fish swimming in an ocean that sustains its life, our ocean is one of evil and it is killing us. The fallenness is to be blamed for Cain and Abel. The fallenness is to be blamed for David and Goliath. The fallenness is to be blamed for David and Bathsheba, for chattel slavery, 
for the Civil War, for the Holocaust, the war in the Ukraine, human trafficking, gun violence, George Santos. Come on, preacher. Watch this. And me. And me. I cannot stand and point my finger at everyone and say, you're all fallen and not point back at me. For everything that has gone wrong in this world has affected every single one of us. In one way, shape, form, or another. You may think your fallenness might not be as bad as my fallenness, but brothers and sisters, let me be clear. Fallenness is fallenness. And while it may manifest itself in different ways in your life, doesn't change the fact that you are not standing. You are on your face. So I painted a really grim picture as I talk about this thing called suffering. And just to reiterate, God did not cause any of the sufferings that you or anyone is experiencing in your lives. But suffering in all of its form came because of original sin and the fall. I hope you're still tracking with me. So if you find that today you are suffering in some way, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. And if you are surprised and you are looking to pass, blame, blame it on Adam and Eve and original sin. But there is some good news. After all of what I just said, listen now to the text. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled, cursed, persecuted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So, so Peter echoes my words when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised when suffering come upon you. In fact, when suffering comes upon you, Peter is saying you should really be expecting it. And he even goes so far as to say you should rejoice in it. Huh? Rejoice when you may be experiencing illness and physical pain in your bodies. Rejoice when depression exerts its crippling effects. Rejoice when you come under financial pressure. Rejoice when oppression from various sectors of our society knocks on your door. Rejoice if you feel stressed as you care for aging parents. Rejoice when you feel worthless and abandoned. Rejoice when the pain of a relationship breakdown is excruciating. Rejoice? What are you talking about, Peter? How can I rejoice when every fiber of my being is in pain? How do I do that? How do you actually sit in a place where you are broken, so broken because of fallenness, and here the Bible and Christians are telling you to rejoice? There is no part of me that wants to feel and act like I'm happy because I'm in pain. Sometimes we as a church talk these way, and people are wondering, what's wrong with these people? Because when the moment pain hits us, we are the last ones rejoicing. <laughs> But we're telling other people to do it. Rejoice, I say. Rejoice. And then Paul comes along and says, be exceedingly glad. But here it is. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
to rejoice in suffering means to make a conscious decision to not let your circumstances make you blame God for something that he did not cause. Did you hear what I just said? I hope you all heard me what I just said. You see, we, when we are suffering, the suffering is exacerbated as it was with Ted Turner because what was happening to his sister, he was directing it to the God who he felt should rescue him or her. And when that doesn't happen, you now have, have, have a grievance against God. Where Paul is now telling us, listen, rejoice. Not so much because of the fact that you're in pain. Nobody rejoices when they're in pain. But you can rejoice that even as you go through this pain, you recognize that the pain you're experiencing is not because of God, but because we are fallen. We live in a world that is broken and busted. It's messed up. I don't care how wonderful your life is. Believe me, live long enough and you're going to become very acquainted with grief and pain. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not pretending from the pulpit that everybody's life is easy. That's why we pray at the altar. Not because the church is so great, but because God is. And if you can appropriate your pain to a God who, oh, by the way, who understands it then maybe, just maybe, you have just enough to allow you to endure something that may be the hardest moments in your life. Yeah. I'm talking about an opportunity that says to you, I, I can't do this anymore. But then you open up your heart to the Spirit of God that will come in and walk alongside you and say, wait a second, I've been there with you. I serve as a chaplain in a hospital. And when I go into the room of a patient who may be close to entering their celestial glory, and they may be even bodies racked with pain, you think I have words that's going to make that any easier? But I can tell you what makes it easier. When I sit in the room, even when I have no words, and I may hold their hand or I may just sit there. My presence says, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Something about making people feel like they are not alone Amen. is just enough to make you hold on just a little bit longer. The pain is still there. But somehow you're able to say, wait a second, I'm not blaming you that's with me for the pain. I can see you and I'm not now seeing my pain. As I shared in the beginning of this message, many of us in the Christian faith have a tendency to believe that because we have committed ourselves in one way or another to Jesus Christ, that we should be exempt from the sufferings that come in this life. But, 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 but again, since joy and pain are like sunshine and rain, and the effects of original sin falls on all of us. But God was not pleased God was not pleased when that happened. And so God did something about it. He did something about it. You may not believe it because you're not experiencing it right now. But I'm telling you that God did something about it. At the heart and the core of the Christian faith is that we serve a God who knows what it is to suffer. You see, Jesus Christ ended his days on this earth nailed to an old rugged cross. 
He suffered brutality at the hands of the Roman soldiers. He was abandoned by his closest friends in his hour of deepest need. The Bible in the book of Isaiah describes him as a man acquainted with grief and familiar with sorrow. So when we are experiencing suffering, the first thing we need to remember as people of faith is that we serve a God who really gets it because he's been there. <laughs> but more than suffering like us, <laughs> he also suffered for us. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. I can't explain it, for I don't understand it. But I do believe the fact that Jesus' suffering in the way that he did goes well beyond anything that you and I could imagine. Somehow, Jesus' suffering on the cross focused all of the world's evil at one pure, clean target. And in order to defeat it once and for all, Jesus absorbed all of the fallenness that came with original sin. And when he took on the world's evil, the Bible tells us he took it down into the grave and he left it there so he could come back and rise again. So if you are fallen and broken and you have faith and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if he rose, so too shall you. Yes, sir. Come on, preacher. <laughs> my brothers and my sisters, Peter again says, to the degree, here it is, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter introduces us to the spirit of glory that rests upon us as the hope that allows us to endure suffering. What this means is that God's power and majesty is revealed not just through suffering itself, but is revealed as he relieves it. Yes. Let me illustrate as I prepare to close. <laughs> In the book of John, it recounts an encounter between Jesus and a man who had been born blind. Some of you may know the story, right? Jesus encountered a man who was born blind. And if you remember, the disciples immediately started looking for some kind of rational cause to explain this man's suffering. Pretty much what we do today in our world. We try to explain away sin. We try to explain away evil. We try to... So these disciples were saying, you know, they're, they're looking for a way to rationalize it. So they asked Jesus the question, hey, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Again, do you see cause and effect? They're appropriating the, 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 the problem of the man to whether or not he sinned or whether or not his parents sinned. And again, the disciples ask a foolish question. Here's a foolish question. Listen to the question. Let me see if y'all can hear it. Let me see if y'all can hear the foolishness in the question. Hey, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Put the parents aside for a moment. How he going to sin and he ain't born? Y'all missed it, right? Was it this man who, who sinned, his sin, that he was born blind? Cause and effect here. So the implication is that even before this man was born, he already had 
some kind of a malady. Fallenness has affected every single one of us in this room and in the virtual space. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how wonderful you think you dress. I don't even care if you think you are articulate and smart. You is fallen. Be clear. You is very fallen. And some of us are more fallen than others. No, I'm not judging. No, no, no. But you understand what I'm saying. But Jesus says neither. He presented them with a different view. He said, this happened. Ooh, this is good. He said, Jesus said, this happened to this man that he was born blind. Here it is. So that. So that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The point here is that while suffering comes to all of us, whether deserved or undeserved, there is a kind of faithfulness that we can display when we are going through the pain that makes it possible for us to bear witness to a God that is with us in suffering. Have you ever met people who are suffering and they're still able to, 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 to walk and you wonder, how is it that you can still be that way and your, and your whole entire world has fallen apart? Remember when, and I talk about this often, the Emmanuel Nine was killed and the family forgave the young man. And on CNN, Anderson Cooper couldn't get past. How is it that you're able to forgive? And she was just saying, no, you got to forgive. And he's like, I can't, I can't, can't. And even though she tried to go in another direction, he kept coming. But, but how can you forgive? In other words, she was bearing witness to something that was impossible for us to do. But with the spirit of God, right. you're able to do the thing that is not normal for us to do. With the spirit of God, you can forgive the unforgivable. Yeah. With the spirit of God, you can love the unlovable. With the Spirit of God, you can do things that wouldn't be normal and natural, but for the grace. The amazing grace. How sweet it is that saved a fallen wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. <laughs> I was blind from even before my birth. Y'all got it? But now, but now, but now, I see. God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's heart breaks because he sees the suffering of this world, knowing that it's not his fault. But he did something about it. He said, can I find somebody, anybody on this earth, who could pay the price for this fallenness and ask for my forgiveness and I will forgive. I just need to find somebody who knows how fallen they are so that they can ask me for forgiveness. And God was looking and he went through 30 and 40 generations. Looking, looking, looking and he couldn't find nobody. He's like, then he looked around and he's trying to figure it out and he says, wait a second, Moses. We know Moses. Moses was a mess. David, you look good. You look like you could be one. But then Bathsheba happened. And he says, you know what? I can't find anybody. So let me do it myself. And he came from glory, formed himself in the fashion of a man, humbled himself, and gave himself on Calvary's cross. 
That's why when Jesus was bleeding and dying on that cross, he looked at the people and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not how fallen they are. Translation. Remember, and, and, and the scriptures tell us that he even said, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. He became the very thing that he hates. And God turned away his gaze. And Jesus says, oh, God, this is the first time in my life that I'm not in communion with you. But into your hands, I commend my spirit. And when he gave up the ghost and he died on that Calvary's tree. Now, 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 the thing I like about that story is Jesus didn't stay on that cross and say, watch the psychology. I forgive you to the people who crucified. You notice he didn't say, I forgive you. Now, remember, Jesus is God. He could have said, I forgive you. But he took on 100% madness. And he said, on behalf of all of us, he petitioned God. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But I'll take it all on me. That's the gospel. Can there be any greater love than one should lay down their life for others? Can there be? So I offer to you, my brothers and my sisters today, you will suffer in this life, all of us. But make sure you know where to point the blame. But not only leave it there, also go to where the Savior is. For he will redeem your very suffering. Amen? Amen. May the Lord richly bless you, Amen. my beloved.